Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning. Good morning. Um, there I go again, for those of you that uh, listened to my last one. Uh, firstly, we apologize for the heat. It is no bueno. Um, secondly, I want to get right into this, but before we do, I want to tell you a little story about a true account of something that happened. Okay, so if you will, follow me in your minds and, and picture this. It is around 850 BC, and Israel is at war with Syria. Now, Elisha is alive during these days, one of the Old Testament prophets, and what he is doing, he is giving divine instruction to the king of Israel about where to go and where not to go as to avoid uh, this Syrian army and destruction. And so, on several occasions, Elisha has saved the life of Israel and its king. Well, this angers the king of Syria. So what he does is he sends his spies out to find out where this Elisha guy is hanging out. And Elisha's in Dothan. So the king of Syria sends his army to where Elisha is. So hear me. This is from 2 Kings. And when the servant of Elisha, the man of God, arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, All around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. One of the greatest tools that you and I have is prayer. One of the most effective weapons in our arsenal is prayer. Yet it is so easy to forget that we have something that is so powerful. When you're on top of the spiritual mountain, church, pray. When you are in the darkest of valleys, church, pray. 
You know, I find it interesting. So immediately after Paul teaches on the armor of God, this is the very first thing that he says. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So when you are coming, when you are going, when you are happy, when you are sad, when you are thankful, and when you think you have nothing to be thankful for, when you are on top of the world or when you're at rock bottom, when you feel as though God hears and answers you before you speak, and when you feel like he is not listening at all, church, pray. We are at war. We're at war. This is a little something that's not going to cost you anything. Are you under spiritual attack right now? Because they're happening right now. Church, I can tell you that those who are not a spiritual threat have spiritual safety, and that is not a good thing. So, so, What I want to do is I want to rephrase that. When opposition arises, excuse me, opposition arises when and where the Lord works. And if opposition is not arising in your game, something's off. So as as we dissect this portion of of scripture, this portion of Romans, what, what Paul is doing, he's doing something uh, that seems super harsh, but it's absolutely necessary. What he is doing, he is pulling back this curtain, he is ripping off this band-aid, and what he's doing is he is exposing our sin, and he is re- revealing how all of us fall short of the glory of God. The devil hates this, and it is all hands on deck for a spiritual assault on you. So, welcome to Romans. <laughs> and I, uh, gosh, welcome to Romans. Man, you have no idea. A couple of us have talked. Hey, and I found like on video, it looks better. This is down here because that's a, that's a Walmart bottle, so I don't, I don't have a fancy one. So, so I'm going to get it out of shot of the camera. <laughs> um, it's an act of humility. <laughs> We're actually going to talk about that today, so thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you uh, very much for that. Great value. Drinking water. Okay, church, let's pray. Father, I want to, I want to first thank you. I want to thank you for what you do, Father, because if we're all being honest You don't need us. Yet for some reason, you love us with this unconditional, unending, agape love. You are full of loving kindness. You are full of mercy. You are full of grace for us. Not just the church, for all mankind. I know this for a fact because while we were your enemies, you died for us. So God, as we get into this word today, I have a huge favor to ask. I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be yours and yours only. 
to give you and you alone glory. I pray that you use it uh, to speak to us, to help us, to break us, and to build us up. And finally, God, I ask, as Elisha had chariots of fire with horses all around him, Father, that you would give the same to this church family as we come together and we dig into a hard portion of Scripture. God, we believe that you will do that today. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we progress through Romans, slowly, uh, Paul is building this case, hoping that his audience, both then and now, see the point that he's trying to make. So, like, after the introduction, man, he doesn't waste any time into getting into God's wrath. And then he, trans- he transitions to the why the wrath, moving to the judgment of the wrath, and then he follows with the means of escape from the wrath. So this text seems so harsh, so harsh, but rightfully so because there's a reason, because it is impossible to understand the depth of God's unfathomable grace if you do not first understand his righteous wrath. It is impossible to understand the depth of God's unfathomable grace if you first don't understand his righteous, righteous wrath. Okay, so Romans is broken up into buckets. At least we, we put them into separate buckets. And so bucket one was Paul's greetings and the blessings, the man, the mission, mission the message. And then we move to bucket two, which was the wrath of God, the saints and the ain'ts. And that's where we are here today. We're still in bucket number two. So if you haven't been with us, we've been hanging out around the story of exchanges and handovers in Romans 1. So God keeps saying that I love you enough that I will give you the free will to choose, but it really isn't the best that I have intended for you. See, every action has a reaction. Every cause has an effect. You make the choice to whatever, fill in the blank, and you will have to live with the outcome of that choice. And so we see over and over through this passage that God takes the person that has made that, that choice and he hands them over. So the first exchange from verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for stuff, for things, so God gave them up. The second exchange, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, so he gives them up. The third exchange was exchanging God-ordered sexuality, so natural relations with members of the opposite sex for unnatural relations with those of the same. So Paul wasn't addressing the greatest sin, but the clearest expression of it in a culture that's disordered. So our homosexual friends are not our enemies. They're no more our enemies than a greedy adulterer is our enemy. So Paul keeps on going, moving from this area of sexual sins to that of relational sins. And once again, God will hand them over to their sin. I believe that God loves you enough to give you that option to choose. He gives you, 
He loves you enough to give you the option to choose whether or not to believe in him, whether or not to love him. But when that wrong choice is made, he has no option but to give you up. So, today we are looking at part three of when God lets you have it your way, the criminal minds. So what I want to do is I want to read these five verses and then we're going to break it down. And this is a lot of text, so I'm going to try to speak quickly. Um, I never thought that I would have to say that, ever. But here we go. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, hear this, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So where are we going? So there are a number of lists in Paul's letters, but this is the longest one of them. He lists 21 shortcomings, vices, or sins that he says are characteristics of people that have rejected God. This isn't a comprehensive statement. It's not exhaustive, but it's selective. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these 21 sins that can be grouped into three separate categories. And it gets confusing with all the numbers, but just hear me out. So you have the first four, the second five, and the last 12, and they all have a certain connection to them. But it starts with a debased mind. It starts with indifference, verse 28. And then it leads to this, four sins of general wickedness. You have five that break human relationships. And then you have two are sins with my mouth, four with my heart, two of rebellion, and then four sins of character. And again, it ends with a debased, a debased mind or indifference. The world God has made is broken by sin. You see, morality is entirely rooted in God. And when God is removed from the scenario, he responds, righteously so, with wrath to our rebellion. Handing society over to its own over-desires. Thus, we find brokenness. So then when we, when we find brokenness, like we should not be surprised. Let this sink in and see if you can relate to something going on around you now. When God is removed from the scenario, he responds in wrath to our rebellion, handing society over to its own over-desires. Thus, we find brokenness. When we find brokenness, it should not surprise us. So this main truth that we're carrying with us today is our main point, and it is this. When God's standards are ignored, 
society will crumble and take you with it. You may be an innocent bystander, but when it crumbles, it will take you with it. Lord, speak this, mor- this morning and open our ears to hear. So the first section that we're going to deal with today, it starts with a debased mind. It starts with indifference. So I'm going to read verse 28, and then we'll break this down. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So in, in 28a, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And so Paul uses his intense form of epignosis, which means exact or full knowledge or recognition. And so the point here uh, that we're talking um, about people who had a very limited general knowledge of God from conscious to creation, but who willfully refused to have any deeper, full knowledge of God. They're content with the surface information. They don't want to know God in a more intimate way. They could really just care less. They're indifferent. This sort of mind is in love with the lie, and it flees from the truth. Our basic nature as fallen humans Uh, doesn't want to receive the knowledge of God. And when it does penetrate our mind, like, we don't want to keep it. Like, get out of here. Hmm. So, these people deal with something, and it's they're caring more about speculation than God's revelation. See, speculation is what happens whenever we look up and speculate, thing about, speculate things about God. Sorry, I was just thinking about a, a really good friend of mine. I'll, I'll tell you about it in a minute, for, from way back. Um, so speculation is what happens when we look up and speculate things about God and what he has said. So to make this all more, sound more official, we'll call it religion, philosophy, and movements, because if we're admitting like we don't know, that's my best guess, man, like people aren't going to believe that. So I, have the, I had this friend, uh, high school and college, best friend. And if he ever hears this, I'm sorry, but you said it. Um, <laughs> and I actually just brought this up the other day with somebody. I don't even remember what it was. So uh, in my youth and ignorance about God, uh, we were talking and about like, what it means to be saved and how to actually be saved. And he says this, <laughs> pure speculation. Me and God have this agreement. If he ever wants me to die for him, I will die for him. Like, dude, that's, just, that's not the way it works, man. It doesn't matter, man. We've got this agreement. I'm like, based on what, bro? <laughs> anyway, so anyway, he was speculating that he and God had this agreement. <laughs> Sorry. So there's speculation. But revelation, on the other hand, is what happens when God looks down to speak to us about himself. And the God of of the Bible has a lot to say, starting uh, in the opening pages um, that that tell us God said. So from that point in Genesis to the end of Revelation, God has a lot to say. He has a lot to reveal, and apparently he's got a lot of it that he wants to reveal through Paul. So there is revelation from God that God creates, and then there is speculation from man that Satan counterfeits. This is the difference. Revelation is from God. 
So only God can truly reveal God. God knows God. And the only way anyone else can get to know God is if God introduces himself first. Revelation is based on truth. God wants you to know who he is and how you can get to know him better. Revelation is God's word to man. When God reveals, direction is, the direction is always down from heaven to earth. Revelation is unchanging because our God does not make mistakes. He got it right the first time, and he never needs to go back and correct it. Speculation. Speculation is from man. So anyone can create some crazy concept about God. Uh, We've got an agreement. Uh, And it's doubtful that you could conceive any strange idea about God that hasn't already been created by somebody else because apparently my old friend, (laughs) he had the same deal the other guy had. Speculation is based on tradition. Since we long for eternity, sometimes we settle for something old from the past, hoping it will suffice for today, and this is how we get tradition. Speculation is man's word about God. If you've ever seen someone angry or screaming at the sky, then you understand philosophy. Speculation is always changing. Just like fake medication doesn't work, so a counterfeit gospel does not meet our deepest needs. So we keep prescribing more fakes to something that's real. So, it's a question. Where are we? Are we believing in speculation over God's revelation in our lives? Hmm. Whenever we lean into more speculation than revelation, and we refuse to acknowledge God, this is what happens. Verse 28b. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. In other words, a debased mind is that they describe that they were too high and too mighty, too smart to acknowledge God in everyday parts of their world. The debased mind can be described as this, corrupted, depraved, perverted. And while all of these words mean to cause deterioration or lowering in quality or character, debase implies a loss of position, a loss of worth, of value, or dignity. So he, he has given them up based on a choice, based on the love that he has for them. He gives them up to a debased mind. A mind that is corrupted, that is depraved, that is perverted. So this mind, this mind is anti-God. This mind is anti-Christ. See, our sin affects everything, and it, it doesn't leave our rational capabilities alone. And this is a really important thing, like when we talk about depravity. Because when we talk about total depravity, we don't mean that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. The Bible doesn't mean that, but what it does mean is this. There is no dimension of human existence that is unaffected by your sin. Your sin is always a condition, long before it's ever an action. So our minds are affected. 
And the Bible is clear in Romans 8, 7. For the, mind is set on the fl- for the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. All human thought, void of the Holy Spirit, operates from a, of a, it operates from a position of hostility towards God. This is a fleshly mind, a carnal mind, an anti-God mind. It's a mind that is simply against God. And so what God does in response to this mindset, he says, listen, like since you think you're above me, I'm actually going to make you a prisoner of your own freedom. This very thing that you call freedom is going to be the very thing that becomes a prison for you. And so God gives him up again. If a man will not use his mind for the purpose of seeking and knowing God, then God responds by giving his mind over to depravity. And we make a huge mistake when we think that it's God's mercy or kindness that he, that he allows man to continue in sin. It's actually his wrath that allows us to go on destroying ourselves with sin. And I tell you, you can see it. And when it happens, it is heartbreaking. So since they didn't bother, a man named Peterson said, since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. So why does this matter of the mind matter so much? It's because we worship God with our mind. Like all sin begins in the mind of the heart, as Jesus said in Mark. Say, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So the Holy Spirit not only fills your heart space, he fills your head space. You cannot know Jesus and you cannot understand the scriptures without the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, Jesus was asked the question, he's like, what is the greatest command? And he says this first in Mark 12, he's like, love God with your mind. This is the greatest commandment. So in order to understand what God is saying, we first need the Bible. It is our number one authority. But something else that's secondarily important that you and I need is this mind. We can't grasp the authoritative teaching of God's word unless we use our minds properly. Therefore, the mind is your first line of defense against error. If we don't use our minds properly as God intended, the Bible will be of no use to guard and to protect us from evil. When Jesus said, love God with all of your mind, this wasn't some passive process. It's not enough to have sentimental religious thoughts 
Loving God mindfully involves coming to conclusions about God and his word based on revelation, observation, and careful reflection. Paul told Timothy, retain the standard of sound words and guard the treasure which has been trusted to you. He told Titus to choose elders who would exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He said those who must be silenced. The protection of truth is not a passive maneuver. It's active. It's engaging. Clarity of truth helps protect us. A mind that's lost loses every other function of the body. Paul is showing the universality and the omnipresence and the everywhereness of sin. He's showing us just how intense it can be whenever God removes his restraining grace and he hands us over to our own desire and our depraved minds. It is spiritual insanity. And guys, I will tell you, like you are all given a sword. You are all given a weapon in addition to the prayer that we are talking about. But you're all given a sword. And it's the word of God. It's the scriptures. But see, when you are given that sword, that that sword is not sharp. It's a butter knife. It is up to each of you individually. Of course, there will be help. But we have to sharpen that tool. So when the attacks come, our mind is sharp and we've got a weapon that can be used. So let me ask you a question. Are you loving God with your mind, not just not thinking happy thoughts about him, but are you loving him with your mind by sharpening that sword also? I mean, are you? Am I? So what does it look like when we deliberately eliminate and we are in, indifferent towards God? Well, here's the answer, and you can see it. We've already seen it in 26 and 27 of Romans 1, and now from 29 to 31, we're going to see this catalog, list of sins, and in it you're going to have a lot of they's. They did not see fit. They were filled. They are full. They are gossips. Though they know, they not only do them. So he's not talking about a specific person. He is talking about a group, a collective group. He is talking about us. Void of Christ, he is talking about us. So now we are going to move into these four sins of general wickedness. Verse 29a. All manner of unrighteousness and evil. And I actually like the way that the message puts this. Uh, And I actually have a word in here for Eric, so I dig how this message puts this, how the, the message puts this. So instead of all manner of unrighteousness and evil, it says, and then all hell broke loose, rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. So, but these sins that we're going to look at can be placed in the category of general unrighteousness or wickedness. So, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is ungodliness. Uh, It is a sin against God. Unrighteousness is a sin against God's people. Ungodliness is sin against God. Unrighteousness is a sin against God's people. Unrighteousness is the counterfeit of righteousness. 
And if you ever spend any time with me, you've heard the word counterfeit come, about, come out of my mouth. So the biggest difference between righteousness and unrighteousness is conviction. The unrighteous do not care that they're sinning. They consider it foolish to be concerned about it. The righteous, on the other hand, are cut to the core for their sin because they're marked internally by God the Holy Spirit. And they're troubled enough with their sin that they run to the only one that can heal them. I am talking to a guy right now that has it hurting his core. You don't know him. I do. Unrighteousness. Next, moving to evil. Evil is wickedness. This is the word we often use to describe Satan, the evil one, who deliberately attacks and aims to destroy the goodness of men that God has created. This is the counterfeit good, Isaiah 5.20. Jesus in the Lord's prayers speaks to this originating from a person. Lord, deliver us from evil. This is someone who actively, deliberately seeks to cause injury, evil. Covetousness. I had to practice saying that. That's a difficult one. But I can say this word. It's insatiable. Desire for more. It's a never-ending buffet because what you have is never enough. Guilty. Guilty. Gluttony in the scriptures the point isn't about food. The point is about the over-desires because you're not satisfied. And when you feed this, you will never be full. Guilty. Covetousness. There we go. Nailed it. Is the sign of someone who does not want God in their thinking. When we covet someone else's property or reputation or job, we're saying God is not just giving it to that person, but he is not giving it to me. In that moment, we are envious or jealous of one another, and we have banished God's from our, God from our minds. And it may not even be something as material gain or position. It may be health. You know, maybe has, God has given you a condition in the here and now, not for the eternity, so that he might be glorified. Why am I not healthy? Why can't I lose weight? Because the way you eat. That's true. The counterfeit. Oh, I was hoping I wanted to say it again. Covetousness is the counterfeit of being content in Christ. Selfishness unlimited. This person pursues their own desires with complete disregard for others. He doesn't care about them and is a complete egotist. Malice. Malice is the desire to do evil things. It's bitterness, it's wrath, it's unrighteous anger. It's enjoying doing what's wrong it's a disposition to injure someone else. You know, sir, there are certain things that we know are wrong that we actually delight in. And then there's this one, guilty. This is the wrong that we laugh at. 
How many times have you seen a reel pop up of somebody doing something wrong and you snickered? Guilty. I probably did it yesterday while I was taking a break. Um, It's evil. Malice is the counterfeit of love. So Paul uses this phrase, all manners of unrighteousness, to describe the breadth and the scope of the wickedness that he's talking about. So the evil and the malice are specific examples of that unrighteousness where covetousness, boom, still got it, is talking about the strong desire to possess something that belongs to someone else, which is another manifestation of unrighteousness. Third section. And so now we move to these five sins that break human relationships. It's envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. 29b. So these sins go into the category of interpersonal sins or sin against each other. Envy. Well, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, Envy is so powerful, it's part of what put Jesus on the cross. Absolutely. Pilate knew that they handed him over because of their envy. They knew that Jesus was coming and he would make their jobs obsolete. They knew that, excuse me, they thought if they could kill God in the flesh, their position in society, their job, their celebrity status would be safe. It was envy was part of putting Jesus on the cross. Envy is the counterfeit of generosity. Murder. Envy, unfortunately, often results in murder. Jesus extended this into being angry with someone else. So, so these seeds of murder lie in all of our hearts. Murder is the counterfeit of rescue. It is a counterfeit of salvation. Strife. Strife is a strong and ongoing conflict over a fundamental issue. Strife is deeper than an argument. It's broader than a disagreement. Strife usually involves bitterness and sometimes violence. Strife within families can result. Strife in families can and will result in lifelong emotional scars. Strife between nations can lead to war. Hear me, church, listen. When strife occurs among believers, hear me, the church's testimony gets a black eye. When strife occurs among believers, Christ is dishonored. Strife is the counterfeit of unity, deceit, Deceit. So this is a word that uses, uh, is used for bait and fishing. It refers to any deliberate attempt to mislead someone, in this case, something, for your own advantage. So what Satan does is he baits your hook. The bait looks shiny. The bait looks good. But there's always a hook in it. There's nothing straightforward about sin. And sinners don't hesitate to deceive one another if their own purposes can be advanced. This is what we've done with the truth. We pursue truth when it benefits us 
but we deny the truth when it opposes us. Both ways can be deception. Deceit is the counterfeit to honesty. Boy, we could have used that and really skipped over this last portion of Romans 1, the difficult part. Maliciousness. So we've talked about this already, but it is conscious in its internal wickedness. This is a demonic spirit of always assuming the worst about others. This is the counterfeit of biblical love that assumes the best. All right, moving to the sins of my mouth. This is from 29C and 30A. They are gossips, slanderers. And I'm going to go ahead and pick up like, the message in this also. I don't know if we have a slide for it. I'm going to read it. Do we have it? Maybe. Maybe not. Okay, this is from the message. So they made life hell on earth with their envy, their wanton killing, bickering, and cheating. Look at them. Mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued God-bashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. <laughs> they keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. This is characteristics of a person that's been handed over. Characteristics of a person with a debased mind. And guys, if we're being honest, we can fit in there somewhere, right? It's a purpose for this. So, so these sins, the gossips and slanderers, can be placed in the category of the sins of the tongue or sins of communication. This is corrupt communication. Gossips. Gossips, like that word literally means whisperers. It refers to someone who likes to secretly spread stories about others. And since this person speaks in secret, man, I just realized I got to hurry up. Um, they aren't brave enough to have that face-to-face. -face. People whisper their plans because they can't speak them out loud. Even in a fallen world, our plans are so evil that others will reject them so that we whisper them. Slanderers. This is someone who openly speaks evil against someone. Gossip is behind closed doors. This is in the open. It's intended to be spoken to hurt someone else's reputation. It's intentional defamation. I've seen it. Has someone bit you in the back? Do you joining in and biting back? This is the counterfeit of restoration. Gossip and slander are both sins involve speaking negatively about others, whether true or false, and that in a way that harms their reputation or cause, actually causes harm to them. These sins are particularly insidious because they can spread quickly and cause widespread damage. And unfortunately, they can be so difficult to undo once those words leave your mouth. The sins with the heart. 30B, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Haters of God. This one is, uh, this is a term directly aimed at God, not at others. This person sees God as being a barrier between him and his pleasures. Hear me. This person sees God as being a barrier between him and his pleasures. Basically, it's this. God is out to spoil my fun. Guilty. 
This is the counterfeit of the greatest command, to love God. Insolent, this is someone who has lofty sense of superiority out of which they treat all other people as beneath them. Haughty, this is arrogance. This is used three times in the scriptures when, um, when God is talking about somebody he wars against. He says, he says this, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So insolent is pride. This is showing, I'm sorry, this is the counterfeit of humility. Boastful, boastful comes from the word wandering. It referred to wandering merchants who would take extravagant, make extravagant claims for their products that couldn't be substantiated. It's all the Rolex watches in New York City. It's boastful. He's boasting about something. So instead of bragging about God, he's looking at what he's done. It's bragging about yourself saying, look what I've done. This is the counterfeit of meekness. Haters of God refer to those who reject or despise God, while insolence, haughtiness, boasting are all sins that stem from a prideful and arrogant heart. These sins reflect on the lack of humility and refusal to submit to God in his ways. These are sins that lead to division and conflict with others, as well as separation from God. Guys, we're getting there. Sins of rebellion. 30, verse, verse 30, the last portion of it, we have inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Inventor of evil. Evil is the most general Greek word for badness. This is describing a person who is void of every quality that would make them good. Inventors of evil aren't just content with the usual ways of sinning. So what they do is they invent new ones, outrageous sins, uh, sins that push the limit in every way. The counterfeit, God creates to bless and enjoy. We create to sin and enjoy. Disobedient to parents. This is the sin that strikes at the heart of family solidarity. It implies a lack of gratitude and its contempt for family authority. As God is the creator of the family unit, this sin seeks to destroy that unit. So these, these two are sins that reflect a disregard for authority and a willingness to go against established norms, rules, and values. This is a counterfeit of God as our father when we remove the father. Verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Hmm. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I picture myself as Clark J. Griswold Jr. on Christmas morning on his little Christmas tirade. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Where's the Tylenol? A few of you got it. All right. So, these sins could be placed in the category of sins of the heart or sins of character. A foolish person is someone without understanding who is acting stupidly. This is misuse of the intelligence that God has given. You can be intelligent, you can look smart, but be unwise. 
They do not fear God, which is where the beginning of wisdom comes. The believer in Christ receives the very nature of God. Christ is in them. We also receive the mind of Christ. Like foolishness isn't always sin. Sometimes it's just dumb. <laughs> so, and here's an example. Like, you have the right to eat the box that that cereal came in, but you don't have to. It doesn't mean you should. You know, it's, just, it's foolish. I mean, you can have it your way, but I mean, you want to eat the box? Foolish. This is a counterfeit of God's wisdom. Faithless. Faithless is a person that is a covenant breaker. Heartless. It means without natural affection. It's not necessarily without a heart, but without God's heart. Ruthless. This is someone lacking compassion and kindness for others. And then finally... We're going to make it. At the end of all this, there's the debased mind or the indifference. So verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So sin reaches its depths when sinners not only practice sin, but hear me, also invite and approve of others who practice in that sin also. Sin reaches its depths when sinners not only practice sin, but invite in and approve of others who practice that sin also. So God has planted what is right and what is wrong in every creature. In your conscience, and it's revealed through creation. They know creation and conscience, which we'll get into later in Romans 2. They know what God has said. They know the standard of his holiness. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They know they're not ignorant. They're indifferent. And the danger of indifferent, indifference is this. They deserve to die. Again, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Every time we sin, we challenge and we defy God's right to reign over his creation. Ooh. And to impose obligation on us as creatures made in his image, it's declared independence. Whenever your conscience is killing you about your sin, we try to silence it. And the one thing that we do is we try to justify our actions. This is done by applauding the action, but we don't stop there. We recruit others to participate. The people that practice, it are, practice this are doubly accountable because they know and are ultimately acting as evangelists, seeking to recruit other people to join their parade of unrepentant pride. So it brings us back to our main point. When God's standards are ignored, society will crumble, and it'll take you with it. So 
Uh, the Bible doesn't just tell us what has happened in the past. It, it is telling us what's always happening. It's historical and it's prophetic. We saw this in the garden as Adam and Eve rejected God's warning not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw it in Noah's day as the people refused to listen to Noah. We saw it in Lot's day as he told the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, please do not act wickedly. We saw it in Moses' day as the people refused to take the promised land. Instead, wanting to stay in the wilderness or go back to Egypt. We saw in the days of Jeremiah as a people refused to repent and put away their false gods. We saw it in Jesus' day as the people refused to accept the invitation of Jesus to come to me, all you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The people said no. God offers us joy. We say we'd rather have the counterfeit. God offers us love. He, we say we'll find it somewhere else. God offer, offers us wisdom and we say we'll take the counterfeit. People, because they have rejected what was in their best interest and because of their insistence, were given over to a plan that was not in their best interest. God has his best interests at heart. And the incredible news is that your best interest intersects with his. But when God's standards, his righteous standards are ignored, society will, will crumble and take you with it. And I find this super interesting uh, in my D group, right now we're going through Revelation, and specifically like this past week we're in Revelation 20. And so as I know the verses that I'm going to be talking about, in Revelation 20, it talks about the price, like the absolute required price for this unpaid sin. And it deals with it. And so I, I'm not a doomsdayer kind of guy, but I am the first to embrace reality. This isn't some fairy tale. This isn't some ploy. This isn't some scare tactic. This is mainly for the purpose of getting your attention and informing you of the reality that will be ours. And this is it. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Both you and I will stand before Jesus one day. Now, what you've got to know is there's actually two separate judgments. We have the judgment seat of Christ where believers will stand before the king and he will judge not our actions but our works. And that judgment is for a reward. But in Revelation 20, he talks about the great white throne judgment. When all of those that chose not to follow Christ will stand before him. Maybe good people, maybe bad, but all without Christ. They will stand before him. And we'll listen to this just real quick. Revelation 20, five verses. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
from his presence, earth and sky flew, fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what you need to know, this Lamb's book of life, based on Revelation 3, says that God has this book, and every person from all creation has their name recorded in this book. But when your last day comes, if you leave this earth not knowing Christ, your name is removed. God has the intention that all come to repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He wants you, but he gives you the choice. He loves you enough to say, listen, that is not what is best for you, but I love you enough to choose. You can eat your cereal box if you want. But I can tell you, church, we will all stand before Christ one day. And I would rather stand before him in judgment for reward than stand before him in judgment for what I've done. Because I can tell you what follows is this. If any man is not, his name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not because he wants to. God doesn't want to do that. It's because he has to. He can have no part of sin. So everyone's name, again, is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 3, 5. It is your inaction that causes it to be removed. It's on you. Uh, bow your heads with me, please. This is a time for you and for me to do something. And if we're all being honest... There's something in this list that Paul has that we're all guilty of. For the believer, it's time to confess our self-righteousness. We need to confess that we are often on the wrong end of this list. It's time to repent. And it's time to turn from our sins, to turn from these counterfeits that were mentioned. To those of you that do not know Christ, that are in danger of having that name removed, do you know how you can get a clean conscience? Do you know how to experience true peace? How to experience eternal peace? And the identity that comes with Christ.
it is made possible for you only because, only because someone was handed over in your place. There is an eternal penalty to sin. And this is a sin that will be paid. Like a a life is required. And I can tell you that Jesus in your place was nailed to that cross. So we've talked a lot about exchanges uh, today today but let me tell you about the greatest exchange of all time this was Jesus exchanging his life for yours so the scriptures clearly say that the wrath of God is dealt with in one of only two ways first Jesus paid the price of God's wrath by taking our place on the cross or Second, we can pay the price of God's wrath in place of our sin by spending eternity separated from hell, from going to hell only to be raised to be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Realize what the Savior has done. Realize what he has saved you from. Realize what he has saved you for. And realize what he has saved you to. God demands righteousness from us. And God has provided righteousness in Jesus because he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, coming to Christ is not about cleaning up before you can come to this church thing. It's not about that at all. It's called, Christ calls you here. You show up. You give your life to Christ. You spend time with him and then he changes you. It's no longer I have to get rid of these things and I have to do these things. It's now becomes, oh my gosh, I get to do these things. I get to go to church. I can't wait to go. Let's act this morning. Believers, if there's confession that needs to happen, let's confess, let's repent. For those of you who don't know Jesus and you know who you are, today is the day that you need to meet him. It is easy. You confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved, guys. Father, I want want to thank you for this group of people, for this family. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. I thank you for your word, for the harsh words. I know that there is good behind the reason. I pray that you use it to uh, bring a 
eternal change this morning. God, thank you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.